today on CityCast Chicago. The week is almost over, my friends. But before you head into your event field or couch field weekend, let's first talk about some of the big stories and the ones you may have missed from the last few days. Joining me to do that is the editor-in-chief of Southside Weekly, Jackie Serrato. It's Friday, July 30th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Jackie Serrato is the editor-in-chief of Southside Weekly, one of the most integral local journalism outlets in our city. Welcome to CityCast, Jackie. Thank you so much for the invitation and for reading Southside Weekly. And so, Jackie, let's look back on some of the stories from this week. And we're going to start with a story that you couldn't stop thinking about or you and the people you're around couldn't stop talking about. Um, and I'm going to get us started, if you don't mind. Please do. The CDC gave us updates earlier this week as it relates to masks and COVID protocols. And let's be clear, they were recommendations. They were not mandates for people to start wearing masks again. But that confusion is really trickling down, right? The CDC says even if you're vaccinated and you're indoors, you should probably wear a mask. If you come in contact with somebody who has been exposed to COVID, even if you're vaccinated, you should get tested. And while that wasn't really confusing, the Chicago Department of Public Health and Dr. Allison R. Woody came out earlier this week. And while they said, you know, Illinois and Chicago make similar recommendations, you know, we still going to go ahead with that 100,000 people a day, a little thing that's happening in the park this weekend. And so for me, that Lee story was really, it feels like maybe we are going backwards. When the CDC, CDC said we could take our masks off back in May, the Delta variant made a 1% of all cases, and now we're somewhere around 83, 84%. Jackie, are you, are you worried that we backsliding? I'm, I'm very concerned. I think that our return to normality, whatever that is, is premature, especially because we know there are many areas in the west side and the south side and, you know, outside of the city, too, within Cook County, there are many uh, towns within Cook County that are majority Black or ma- majority Latinx, and they are still under-vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very concerning because we know that a lot of essential workers live in these areas. We know that they are primarily people of color. Uh, we know that they are low income. You know, vaccination may not be as easily accessible as it might be for other communities. Yeah, I've been watching the COVID tracker that Southside Weekly put out since the very start, that shy, is the shy bot tracker, to really show the vaccine disparities. And this shit ain't got no better. Protect Chicago Plus ain't got no better. Mobile vaccines, it ain't got no better. The disparities between the poorest, the blackest, the brownest communities, and the wealthiest, whitest communities have grown. And so when we hear this backslide, we got to make it clear that the backslide is really going to have that negative impact on the communities that this entire pandemic has had a negative impact on. So the, like you said, that return to normal felt for a lot of people, including myself, including you, very premature. And now we're watching ourselves slowly roll back while having to deal with what feels like an embedded hypocrisy of keep moving bigger and bigger events uh, sort of out onto the schedule. Uh, Was there another story that you was talking about this week that you couldn't turn away from? Yeah, I don't know if you've been hearing about the ECPS ordinance. ECPS stands for 
empowering communities for public safety. Yeah, we talked about it last week when it came out of city council. Yeah, well, I feel like it's still relevant and it's it's one of those kind of underrated stories because there's been an effort that's taken months and really years where a coalition of more than 100 groups and organizations, you know, have been pushing for police accountability. And these are organizations that have a track record of trying to hold the police accountable going as far back as Laquan McDonald. So even though this ordinance isn't CPAC, which was like the original goal, yeah. CPAC would have been an ordinance that would have allowed, you know, civilians, regular people to have the power to, to fire and hire police superintendents. So with this ECPS ordinance, the mayor still retains the power to hire and fire the superintendent, but it does create a commission of of local residents that would do community engagement and make recommendations for CPD and other department policies. It, it really highlights that ongoing frustration with reform efforts is that you want to, on one hand, you know, you want to celebrate these efforts, but you know, they're almost always watered down versions of what the people wanted, what individuals were expecting. And you said it yourself, the mayor's goal in this was really about maintaining power. The delay of putting an ordinance forward was a political strategy move to give us less time to scrutinize, less time to criticize, but also to make us uh, what's the word? insatiable, make us more accepting of what we can get. Because the longer you put it off, the more the people are willing to be like, we need something. And this effort largely felt like, you know, while it was a compromise on so many different levels, it kind of felt like, uh, you know, we have to be happy that some people will be more empowered to have a voice in this process. But at the end of the day, this is always about power and where it lies. And it seems to still lie down in City Hall. Yeah, I, I do think it's it's an incremental step, hopefully to, you know, eventually get to that point where the community does have more power to hold the police accountable. But uh, there's one aspect that I do think has a lot of potential from this ordinance. Talk on it. Each police district will be able to have three member councils. Basically, anybody can run for for a seat in those councils as long as they meet the requirements by the by the board of elections. But but again, this is not this is not where we, where we want to be at. I, I feel like people are going to keep pushing. We have to t not take. Uh, but we have to celebrate and to try and strengthen those gains we did make. What did they say? This has to be the floor, not the ceiling. Yeah, and we should also value the process of so many dozens of organizations coming together across the city. It's building an infrastructure that will help communities organize themselves, not, not just around policing, but around really anything that they need to take care of. I'm I'm with you 100%. Uh, in a week that I thought had a lot of overhyped stories, I really wanted to focus more on the underhyped stories in Chicago, the stories this week that may have not gotten the attention they deserved. And I wanted us to start in Little Village. On Tuesday, there was a private ceremony to open a new 1.3 million square foot Target warehouse on the Hillco site, the former site of the old Crawford coal plant. And while, you know, the alderman, uh, Michael Rodriguez, you know, focused on the 2000 jobs or so that's going to come to the neighborhood. There were activists out there from places like the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization was like, our community does not need another warehouse. We do not need semi trucks and diesel trucks driving up and down our streets. 
and when we say we need more jobs, why is it that in the South, the West Side communities, that those jobs tend to simply be warehouse, industrial jobs that have a negative impact on those communities? We need to focus a lot more attention on these environmental justice issues. You know, at the start of the pandemic, when they imploded that smokestack and left debris just sort of barreling down the street in the air across that community, you thought people would have said, we need to take a closer look at this. And yet here we are, you know, cutting ribbons on the low low as to not drive more attention to what the community has made it clear they don't necessarily want. Yeah, uh, big ups to all those organizations that have been fighting, first of all, to close the coal plant because for decades there was a coal plant right in the middle of the community that was polluting the community for so many years, for generations, really. And we have like high rates of asthma and other respiratory illnesses. And in the middle of a pandemic, they decide to implode a century-old smokestack that, like you said, spread out all kinds of debris and pollutants and irritants across the neighborhood. And there was actually uh, an elderly man who, who lived right across the street from, from the plant, and he, he passed away the next day. I, I managed to get um, you know, community input from people who lived near the, the coal plant, and there were complaints of people who were just coughing for days, who were coughing up like black suit. So imagine these community groups working for years to close down the plant for the city and, and a developer to suddenly come and say, well, you know, we're going to take this piece of land and we're going to do whatever the hell we want with it. Right. We're going to capitalize on it. We're going to monetize it when this is a, a plot of land that is right next to the river. People really wanted to have like uh, community gardens. Um, they wanted to um, be able to canoe on the river, um, even though it's polluted. Like we wanted to find ways to still make use of the water. So here was an opportunity really to to develop and build something that would have benefited the community in some way or another. And now we just have like a massive gray warehouse that may not even end up hiring our people, you know, because there are all these requirements and legal requirements that many undocumented people, you know, simply do not meet. Jackie, is there a story that you felt failed, uh, fell off a lot of people's radar that was under hype this week? It was actually a story that we published at Southside Weekly. I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the case of Anjanette Young, right? The the black woman whose apartment was barged into by by CPD while she was unclothed, and it turned out to be the wrong home. So there there was a, a hearing in on Tuesday, I believe, that was convened by by women council members who want to set guidelines and reforms for for these type of raids, which are actually a lot more common than than we think. Yeah. And in in the piece that that we published, we showed that. This isn't an isolated case that home invasions are super widespread. And um, this investigation by the Invisible Institute found that children are often witnesses to these breaches. The raids are poorly documented and that when there are errors made, that there's usually like no accountability. No paper trail. Exactly. Or, or the victims are paid to essentially not take any legal action. So just between 2016 and 2019, CPD performed 1,500 raids a year, and about half of them resulted in no arrests, and fewer than 5% of them turned up any drugs. 
And the article for people listening is CPD's Pattern and Practice of Home Invasions, written by Myra Quaja, Trina Reynolds-Tyler, and the Invisible Institute that was published on Southside Weekly. I actually had a feeling that this story would come up because I had been looking at it all week. I had been reading it since it came out. My conclusion was like, the end of the executive order literally says you can still do no-knock warrants. You can still do them. Yes, a different person has to sign off on it, but you can still do them. If there's a child there, think about it, but you can still do them. And so the Anjanette Young ordinance is asking that these warrants be executed during a time window of like 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. They want officers to be more time focused, you know, give a 30 second window when they just show up at these doors. And you could bring, officers want to bring all these stories of like, oh, that gives the criminal so much time. It gives the criminal so much time. I'm not trying to hit that shit when I'm watching a video that you fought for a year to get released of a woman being harassed in her own home with barely no clothes on. You come out after a cover up. And then just for this article that Southside Weekly put out to further highlight that we have no idea how many of these botched, wrongful, terrible raids have happened because they don't tell you when they've gone to the wrong place or when the informant information uh, was absolute nonsense. For sure. And not to go into details, but I, I've, you know, I've been in a house that has been raided before. Uh, this was a few years ago. And that shit is traumatizing. They don't care who you are. They don't care if you even live there. They, they, they go in yelling and screaming and really turning the house around, basically destroying everything. Like I remember there was a CPD official in this particular case that they were threatening the owner of, of, of the house. They were basically saying that they were going to um, bring down all of the walls. That they were going to smash the walls to see if there were drugs hidden in between, you know, the drywall, which I thought was crazy. And, th- and there were children in the home. And even though I was a journalist, I had like zero power to do anything. I was treated like a criminal, just like everybody else in that house. Uh, and I was just a guest there. So, you know, from, from personal experience, that shit is traumatizing. My brother, um, when he was in college, had his home raided. And I think they found less than a gram of weed on him. And that stood, stayed on his record for six years, impacting his ability to obtain employment, to get more loans for school. It really put a some shackles on his ability to move uh, all because officers decided to kick in his door. Again, when you have no accountability, when there is no system to make right for the people whose homes were invaded, when there's no system to hold officers accountable, I don't want to hear the officers involved in the Anjanette Young ordinance were, you did that a year and some change after the fact. So it's not a real system when you only hold people accountable when everybody can see it. Yeah. But Jackie, we can't leave people there. Every episode of CityCast Chicago, we try to leave folks with some good news to get you through. And so we like to talk about a moment of joy, something we pulled out of the news, something we experienced this week that really just kind of made us happy. Was there a story you saw this week that really just brought you joy? The Museum of Science and Industry has a Black woman who is now basically leading all of the operations of the museum. And one thing that she wants to do is to reach out to communities and find ways to make, you know, science uh, more appealing to to communities of color. I sometimes feel like our Chicago museums feel inaccessible to our communities. 
partly because of where they're located. You know, they're, they're located across, you know, right, right next to the lake. Sometimes it's difficult to get there by foot or by public transportation or, you know, or even a car. It's difficult to find affordable parking, right? So just knowing that there is somebody in charge who is keeping these things in mind and wants to do outreach to our communities, I think it's really promising. And, and you're right. It's a shame that coming up, the museums in Chicago were just like, like field trips in the back of my mind. I never really saw myself in them. I never considered them to be partly mine. Because if you're from Chicago, if you live in Chicago, they are yours. And yet because of the, you know, the ticket prices or the inaccessibility of the museums or how little outreach they actually do in our communities, you know, they, they feel the way they look, which is hands off. Like, don't touch this. And, and so as an adult, I have made a, a, an effort to go to the, the smaller museums in Chicago, the Haiti American Museum, all the way up to the MCA more. And a lot of it is just to claim space, to say, this is ours. This is mine as much as it's anybody else's in this city. And so you're right. My moment of joy in a week in which we talked a lot about sports, particularly Olympics, I want to focus on a local team, the Humble Park Gators, or the Chicago Scout, the name they went by in the All-Girls Baseball National Championship Tournament last week. Uh, the Humble Park Gators are the only all-girl baseball team yes. in Chicago. They started a couple of years ago, and a lot of those young women, those young girls, had competed on teams that had all boys on it. And they were looking for their own place in baseball. And so they put this team together. Obviously, the pandemic impacted their season, but this year they were able to play and they went to a tournament in Maryland, the 2021 Baseball for All Tournament. Not only did they sweep the tournament, have a comeback in the semifinal, but they won the national championship and are bringing it home to Chicago. And the more I read about the team, about the story, about how much the young girls like being on the team with one another, they love competing with one another, how much they love baseball in a in a week in which we focus so much on competition at some of the highest levels in the world, I think it's always important to focus on those younger local stories as well, because the hope is that one day, you know, these young girls are, you know, doing whatever they love to do. If it's baseball, if it's something else uh, at the highest level. Yeah. I do remember reading about that story and, and um, cheering for them. Um, and and it's, it's impressive to see how much they've grown over the years because like you said, it started off with a handful of young women and and now, you know, they're they're really showing their impact across the country. Jackie Serrato is editor in chief at the amazing Southside Weekly. Thank you for joining us on CityCast Chicago to, you know, shoot the shit. Thank you so much for the invitation and I hope to come back sometime. I don't know about you. But I can't believe that the summer is about halfway over already. So my team put together a little last days of summer bucket list, and I wanted to hear what they were most looking forward to checking off before the fall gets here. Lead producer Carrie Shepard. Go support the White Sox, who are dominating in the American League right now, and try to find a night where it's one of their famous promotions. I'm going tonight, and it's Elvis night. So we'll see what I get. And Natalie Rivera, when you visit us from La La Land, what are you hoping to do? 
Something I would do in Chicago is go to West Towns Dancing in the Streets. I haven't danced with other people since the pandemic started, so I would really love to check that out. And you guys can actually next weekend, which is really awesome for you. And Sydney, man, what you looking forward to? I really want to try Rainbow Cone. I've never had it before, and I feel like such a poser because I was born and raised in Chicago. Me? I've never actually taken a water taxi in Chicago, so this weekend I'm going to take one to Ping Tom Park for the Chinatown Summer Fair. To get access to our beautiful bucket list and other CityCast Chicago merch, you need to first sign up for our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm and then refer a friend. It really is that simple. Speaking of friends, I got to give a shout out to Sam Trump and Mark Greenberg from the Mayfair Workshop for making the music you hear on CityCast. And my last thank you, as always, is for you. I appreciate you riding with us for another week. I'll talk to you on Monday. Peace. It's my favorite publication. They're going to cut that out. They cut out 98% of my singing, Jackie.